I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you are using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1148. And then after that, we're going to turn in the Forms and Prayers book to Lord's Day 33. The page number there is indicated in the bulletin as well, page 238. In chapter 6, Paul talks about that the Christian is not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And now he begins to explain that later on at the end of chapter 6, that God's people are to be separate, to not be uh, of the world, though living in the world, we are to be unequally yoked with, we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And now he starts at chapter 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while." As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear ourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask the Lord blessing in a time of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit is teaching the church of Jesus Christ. May you grant us wisdom. May you grant us understanding. And may you grant us a willing heart, a believing heart, that we may walk in Christ, and live lives that bear fruit in accordance with repentance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Congregation, I invite you to turn in your Forms and Prayers book to 238, Lord's Day 33. There are four questions to this Lord's Day. I will ask the question, congregation, let us respond with the answer. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. Congregation of Christ, in our sermon texts, Paul shows himself to be a spiritual father. He's a spiritual father to the churches in Asia Minor, the churches in Macedonia. He's a spiritual father to the Corinthian Christians. He loved them deeply. He wept for them bitterly, shedding many tears, and he pleaded with them. He was like a father to them, a spiritual father. Earlier in this epistle, Paul shows once again his fatherly love for them. In chapter 2, chapter 2 brings a bit of context into our sermon text this evening, chapter 7, where at chapter 2, verse 1 and following, Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul wrote another letter, a letter that we don't have possession of. It's known as the severe letter. Paul, like a father, wrote them a severe letter. We don't know exactly the sin involved. In chapter 2, there's a section there about someone who sinned and who grieves deeply and that the congregation ought to forgive this brother lest he become overwhelmed in grief. But at the end of the day, it's difficult to know exactly what Paul is referring to in our text in chapter 7. What particular grief they suffered from. What Paul was specifically addressing Congregation, I want to tell you that discipline is difficult. 
and painful. So Paul, as a spiritual father, is doing. Discipline is difficult and painful because correction hurts. If you have a broken bone and it needs to be replaced back into position, that hurts. Spiritual correction hurts. It's difficult and painful for the child, but it's absolutely necessary for shepherding the child's heart and character. In fact, the Bible teaches that one who does not discipline his son actually proves that he hates his son and does not love his son. So Paul is a spiritual father who shows his deep, deep love for these people, these believers. Discipline is difficult and painful not only for the child, but for the one who does the discipline himself. Fathers, when you discipline your children according to the measure of the the sin, did you take great pride in it? Did you love it? Like, I'm going to get you, son or daughter. No. We grieve, too. It is hard to discipline on the part of the one who gives it. Discipline also hurts the parents. It hurts to correct and discipline our children, but we know that we must do it and pray that the child takes to heart the correction, turns from his sin, or repents, receives forgiveness, and desires to walk in Christ. Paul's severe letter has the purpose of this. He desires the Corinthians to repent. To know the mercy and grace of God in Christ. This evening we want to look specifically at verse 10. You can look with me in your Bible. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This will be interpreted in light of and applied in light of its context, particularly chapter 7. And so the theme of the sermon is taken right from the verse. Godly grief produces genuine repentance, or godly grief produces repentance. Paul's goal, Paul's hope for them is that they would repent. Let's look at the meaning of repentance. For godly grief produces works accomplished, produces a repentance. Work, uh, produces has the idea of works or accomplishes. For godly grief accomplishes or works a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What is the meaning of repentance? I want to start there before I talk about godly grief. There's a reason for it. I hope you see it in a few moments. But there's a reason why I want to start with repentance. 
Some Corinthians disapproved of Paul's ministry, and others approved and supported him. As I stated, as, as he states several times in this letter, it was a severe letter he had to write, a difficult letter for him to write. And we see in our text that at verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, he says. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Paul regretted it at first because they were grieving and hurt by the letter. Because they grieved, he grieved too. Like a father grieves at the measure of discipline upon his son or daughter. However, they suffered grief only for a moment, says verse 8. You see that there only for a moment. Actually, it's literally only for an hour, which is a way of saying a momentary time. And they had a grief that led to repentance. The severe letter led to repentance, and because of that, he no longer regretted it. Because that was his objective. That's what his hope was. Repentance comes from a Greek word that means to change your mind, a turning of your mind, a change in the inner man. Genuine repentance is a turning away from false gods and idolatry to the true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Remember, by nature we are children of wrath. By nature we are following the course of this world and the prince and power of this world. But repentance turns you the other way and you're going towards Jesus and towards the Lord and His ways. Paul rejoiced in the Thessalonians. Why? Because they turn from false idols to the true and living God. That's repentance. He even alludes to this earlier in chapter 7. He begins to set the, his argument at verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. as put away every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. That's repentance in action. That's bearing fruit. Lord's Day 33, question and answer 88. The Catechism teaches that repentance consists of two things. The dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new self. That is genuine repentance. That is conversion. Conversion is a way of speaking of two things. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is conversion. And that manifests itself in the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new self. Notice the tense of the verbs. The dying away. The rising to life. Let me ask you a question. Is God done with you yet in this life? Have you arrived in terms of holiness? You and I have not arrived. That's why I love the tense of this word, the dying away. 
genuine re- repentance manifests itself in a continuation, a continuous act of God's grace by the Spirit in one's life where the flesh is being put to death daily and the rising to life in Christ, the new self, is being manifested more and more day by day. Because Paul loved God's people, God, uh, Paul corrected them. He corrected them. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. You were grieved into repenting. Some think that Paul, when he wrote this, was emotionally disturbed. That he was going through emotional trials. That he sent that severe letter prematurely and he felt regret for sending it. He was repenting, they believe. Was Paul thinking rightly? Did he prematurely send that letter of rebuke and correction? Paul could have ignored the issues in Corinth, but he would have been accountable to God. Paul could have neglected his shepherding responsibility, responsibilities, but he would have been derelict of duty and accountable to God. Paul is a spiritual father, and as such, he was duty-bound to call them to repentance even if the correction hurt him and grieved him. Because they turned. They turned. There was a change in the inner man. Now we come to our second point the prerequisite of repentance or the prerequisite of genuine repentance. What is required for genuine repentance? What comes before repentance? Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance, a turning from sin and idolatry that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul differentiates between a godly grief and a worldly grief. Godly grief is the one that accomplishes a repentance or works a repentance or produces a repentance in the life of a believer. Not worldly grief. Because godly grief is a godly sorrow for sin. It doesn't come from man's nature, but it's the work of God and His Spirit in the life of the Christian. A work of His grace. The Holy Spirit convicts us of unrighteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts us in our hearts that we have grieved God. That we have sinned against God, that we have sinned against God's law and commandments. This is important. You're, you're probably thinking, well, duh. But wait till I get to worldly grief, and that's like in a few moments. Just wait. Because I dare to say, what we think is godly grief is often worldly grief. 
the Holy Spirit convicts us of unrighteousness and creates in us a godly awareness, understanding of our sin and misery, leading us to a godly grief or sorrow for sin. When you sin against the Lord and His law, His majesty, boys and girls, when you commit a sin or you do not honor father and mother and you have that ache in your heart, you know you did something wrong, that something isn't right, you offended someone. The Holy Spirit's working, convicting. We're reminded and convicted by the Spirit of our offenses against God and His majesty. In congregation, godly grief is a good thing. you're taking notes, write that down. Godly grief is a good thing. Godly grief is the prerequisite of repentance. And it is a good thing because it confirms and assures us that by the grace of God, the old self is indeed dying away and we are rising to new life rising to life in the new self. God, the Holy Spirit, is sanctifying and transforming us as he demonstrates his power in us to crucify the old self and to put out a new self in Christ. You and I haven't arrived. God is doing a work by his Spirit. And this confirms and assures us, this godly grief confirms and assures us that he is doing a work. Godly grief is a good thing also because it confirms our love and desire to love God more and to run from sin. Is that not a good thing? It confirms our love and desire to love and please God by obeying His word and will in our lives. Because we recognize and confess that we have fallen short of what? The glory of God. By way of a biblical illustration, and probably the most notable parable in the Bible, is the parable of the prodigal son, which I like to call the parable of two lost sons. The son rejects his father, essentially, asks for his inheritance. The father gives it to his son, and the son leaves his father and family. He indulges in of immorality of all sorts, he indulges in loose living and his heart grows colder and colder and becomes hardened. In time, he realizes the error of his way. He comes to his senses. He becomes convicted of his sin 
And what does he say? Against heaven and against you I have sinned against. Against heaven, against God, I have sinned. He knew the depravity of his heart when he realized the consequences of his sins. Life isn't working as I had hoped. Wealth and loose living didn't bring him peace and contentment. He then came to his senses and remembered what his father's goodness. He returned home, saw his father, ran. His father ran to him. He confessed his sins to his father. This is a beautiful example of godly grief. A beautiful illustration that our Lord Jesus Christ gives of godly grief. Against heaven and against you I have sinned. He didn't say, he didn't say, my life is a mess and I want to go back to the way it was. You notice that? I don't want to face my hardship anymore. Because that's worldly grief. Worldly grief is a sorrow for sin, but only its consequences. How sin affects one's lot in life. It's not a sorrow that comes from a regenerate heart that seeks God's mercy and grace in Christ. John Calvin wrote, The sorrow of the world is when men despond in consequence of earthly afflictions and are overwhelmed with grief, while sorrow, according to God, is that which has an eye to God, while they reckon it, with, reckon it the one misery, to have lost the favor of God when, impressed with fear of His judgment, they mourn over their sins. So he's saying that worldly sorrow, worldly grief, is when men are despondent in consequences of earthly afflictions. Esau sought repentance and didn't find it. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says? Chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he had desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was sorry for the consequences. He was sorry that he didn't receive the blessing. Judas grieved, and he grieved deeply, didn't he? Even giving back the silver. However, his grief was a worldly grief. His grief didn't produce genuine repentance, but rather took his own life.
How about in the home? How about a child in the home who grieves because he grieved his parents and sinned against his parents but doesn't understand or know that he offended God? If a child sins against or offends his father or mother and comes to father and mother, I'm sorry I did this to you, mom and dad. Forgive me. That's great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a, that's a good thing. But a godly grief, first and foremost, has a conviction of sin a conviction that they have first and foremost sinned against God. What does David say in Psalm 51? Against you and you only I have sinned. And he said that after Bathsheba and after the, plotting the death of Uriah. Well, did he sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah? Yeah, he did. But he had a godly grief because he understood that he first and foremost sinned against God. And so parents, when your children come to ask for forgiveness, are you teaching them and showing them the gospel and teaching them and showing them what godly grief is and looks like? I'm a great child that you came and asked for forgiveness. I forgive you. Have you asked God to forgive you? Because when God is not the first person on the radar, on the heart's radar, it becomes merely an earthly or worldly grief. It's at an earthly plane, a worldly plane. And we learn from these examples of Esau and Judas. Judas. We learn that genuine repentance doesn't manifest itself in our tears and sighs and groanings. These are not clear-cut signs of genuine repentance. They could be signs that they just got caught and are upset with the consequences, sad about the consequences. It also teaches us that it's not merely an emotional response to the reality of sin in one's life. I can emotionally respond to sin and with tears and sighs and groanings, but is that genuine repentance? And don't get me wrong, emotions are part of repentance. I mean, when we repent, we grieve, we, we mourn them, we are sorry for our sin, and tears flow. But it's not the litmus test for genuine repentance. No, godly repentance is described 
produces a genuine, godly grief produces a genuine repentance. I'll give you another example. An addict may grieve his sin of alcoholism or drug addiction or sex addiction. He may grieve this addiction, these addictions, and actually turn from these, have a sorrow for these sins. Especially the effects that they have upon family members who suffer in the process and who grieve in the process. But if it's only a matter of the earthly plane of being sorry for its consequences of what it's caused in the family, in the home, and even in one's own life, that's a worldly grief. The addict who knows his sin and misery and that his heart's been convicted that he has first and foremost created idols of addictions must turn to God first and foremost and grieve his sin before a holy God. But if it merely stays at a horizontal level, that is a worldly grief. In counseling, we have a saying. We have a saying that we don't counsel people to be better in hell. We don't counsel people to be better in hell. What does that mean? I think you can figure it out. We don't counsel people to be good for goodness sake. We don't counsel people to to feel sorry for their addictions and the consequences of it and leave out Jesus Christ. Leave out the law of God. Leave out the truth of God. That first and foremost, a godly grief consists of a person's heart being convicted by the Spirit and turning to God through Christ. Godly grief is the prerequisite of repentance. Thirdly, the result of repentance The result of repentance is salvation. Now notice, repentance isn't the cause of salvation or the grounds of salvation. Jesus Christ and His righteousness is the grounds of our salvation. Repentance is the effect of our salvation that God has provided for us. Because repentance and faith is a gift of God. If we say that repentance is the grounds of our salvation, then we're talking about a works righteousness or a salvation by works. You have to work up repentance to be saved. Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
Repentance leads to salvation. Repentance shows the work of Christ and His Spirit in the lives of His people. He has worked godly grief in His people. He led the Corinthians to godly grief by His Spirit. And repentance leads to salvation and to a life of good works to the glory of God. Good works to the glory of God. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees and scribes, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So genuine repentance shows itself in a transformed life, a life changed by God. How do we know if a person is truly repentant or genuine? How do you know if you have genuine repentance and have salvation? Do you trust in Christ for the full forgiveness of sins? Do you trust in Him for eternal life? Don't make this into a works righteousness. You have to muster up enough repentance to be saved. God did the work. God brings about conviction and conversion. Do you have that confirmation in your heart by the Spirit and Word that you belong to Him? You desire, you desire the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new self. Catechism asks, but what are good works? Only those that are done out of true faith, conform to God's law and are done for His glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. God makes us His masterpiece, doesn't He? Brings us to repentance, genuine repentance. Grants us a godly grief that produces that genuine repentance so that we may walk in His ways and trust in Him. The result of repentance is also great joy. Joy in God through Christ. Joy to the believer. Paul rejoiced at the news of the Corinthians. The Corinthian Christians had many sin problems in the congregation, but God was working in their hearts, transforming them day by day. He says this earlier in chapter 3. But because they repent, because Paul's prayer was answered, because they repented, all parties rejoiced. And now let us consider once again the prodigal son. There was great, what, joy and celebration when the son returned. The father embraces the son, decks the son in the finest clothes, calls for a great celebration. The elder son was greatly displeased with the father, but the father says it was fitting. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Your brother repented. He turned Let's be joyful about it. And it makes me wonder if the younger brother now had a godly grief and the older brother had a worldly grief. 
Dad, I did everything you told me to do. I'm the better son. Father's like, this son of yours was, this brother of yours was lost, but now he's found. Celebrate. Celebrate. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death, leads to death. And I deliberately left out, didn't, speak of those words without regret because I'm going to leave it for this final comment. And it's a question. When was the last time you were ever disappointed when you expressed godly grief? When was the last time you regretted repenting? Can you ever think of a time when you regretted that? Paul says, without regret. Don't see godly grief as a weakness. It is a strength. Because in our godly grief, we see the weakness of our flesh, but we see the greatness and strength of our God to save us in Christ. And that through repentance and faith, God is sanctifying us by his word and spirit. And he grants to us life, not death, life, even life eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the gift of repentance and faith. We thank you, O Lord, for your blessed benefits that you bestow upon us in Jesus Christ. He is the very grounds of our salvation. And the Holy Spirit now applies the work of Jesus, creating faith in us so that we indeed are convicted of our sins and know that godly grief godly grief that leads to repentance and faith. Oh, Father, I pray for those here. I pray for those here or watching via live stream who only know a worldly grief. That you, O oh Lord, would, by your Spirit, convict them. That they would turn to you first and foremost and seek your forgiving mercy and love that is found solely in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.